So, yeah, we're continuing a series called Prepare the Way uh, in John chapters 1 to 5, as the screen says. And today uh, we're up to John chapter 2, um, starting at verse 13. So if, you wanna, if you've got a Bible, if you want to find it, otherwise in a minute it will be on the screen when I, when I hit the next button. So uh, John chapter 2, I'll just find it as well. <coughs> John chapter 2, verse 13. <clears throat> Simon, if you could just um, roll this one on as, I, as we go, because I've written. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he pulled out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So, uh, a few weeks ago, Keith preached, I believe, uh, here on uh, the, the section previously in chapter 2 and that was Jesus turning water into wine and Jesus in that story was very much the life of the party Uh, I think he probably made many friends that day and he probably got a lot of wedding invites uh, to future weddings because you know if you're going to have a if you're going to have a man who can turn water into wine you're going to make a good a good wedding and a cheap wedding so um, uh, yeah it was a good time and people were loving Jesus at that at that time and then just sometime later, we don't know exactly how long, Jesus now comes to another celebration. This is the Jewish Passover celebration. This was a big celebration in the Jewish calendar where Jews from all over, the, all over would come to Jerusalem uh, in, in, to remember a great event um, hundreds of years earlier where God had set their ancestors free from slavery in Egypt. And they would have a celebration together. And they would eat and they would sacrifice and it would be a good time. This time, Jesus isn't quite the, the, the light. He's not the guy who makes the party. He's rather the party pooper. Uh, because this time, rather than turning water into wine, he gets a whip and he casts people, he drives people out of the temple. If the last Jesus was the, the happy, clappy Jesus, this one is the angry Jesus. And uh, many of us probably prefer the water into wine Jesus than the temple driving out Jesus. And the trouble is, many of us, including me sometimes, uh, have a wrong, unbiblical view of Jesus. And, don't get me wrong, these these two pictures are caricatures. But sometimes uh, we can have this cuddly Jesus in our mind. Cuddly Jesus, 
with it, yeah, and we're a little sheep, he gives us a cuddle, and it's all nice, and he's just our best friend, and everything's good, and he never says a bad word to us. Um, so even more of a caricature, and I won't stand this one too long because it's a little bit offensive, uh, is this Jesus, um, who's, who, you know, is just like, you know, I'm your best mate, we're going to be great, it's gonna, let's, let's go, let's do this together. And that's an extreme version, I agree. But sometimes we can have this view of Jesus. But the reality is, the Jesus of the Bible is a Jesus who gets angry. Let's read this passage. Read Revelation 19. The God of the Bible, which Jesus is and represents, is a God who gets angry. God hates and he confronts sin. God, and therefore Jesus, hates and confronts mediocrity and compromise. God hates evil and injustice. He confronts these things head on. He's not someone who just says, it's okay, it doesn't really matter, let's just, let's just cover over that and, and forget about it. It's alright, let's just, let's just be good friends and just see how it goes. He is a God of justice, he is a God of holiness, he is a God of perfection, and when things come against that, he confronts them head on. And so it means that when we go astray, that bothers God. When we go away from him, when we veer off, when we, when we lose our passion for him, when we, when we enter into a life of mediocrity with God, that really bothers God. And so the true biblical Jesus isn't the Jesus who cuddles us, but he's the Jesus who transforms us. He's in the business of transformation, of making us more and more like him. That is, that is the goal of the Christian life. It's not to have a nice, comfortable time where we get the cuddle, cuddle from God every now and then to give us another pep talk and off we go again. But it's, it's one to be transformed, conformed into the image of our Saviour. That's what it's about. And yes, he cuddles and he comforts, metaphorically speaking, and encourages us and, and strengthens us along the way. You see, the anger of Jesus and the love of Jesus aren't contrary to one another. Sometimes we have that view that, oh, if he's angry, therefore he can't be loving. If he's loving, he can't be angry. But actually, the love of God, the love of Jesus is born out of, sorry, the anger of Jesus is born out of his, out of his love for us. It's like a parent parent, when their child goes astray, when their child does things which harms them and harms other people, will get angry. And that's a good thing. That's a right thing. But the anger of a, of, a, of a good, perfect parent, obviously we're imperfect parents in this world, but the anger of a good parent is born out of a love for that child, an unconditional love, but the anger is a part of that love. And so it is with our God. So it is with Jesus. His anger is always born out of love. He confronts out of love. He speaks the truth to us in love. It is always considered. It is always just. It is always right. Jesus never flies off the handle. Praise God. I fly off the handle sometimes. Just ask that. And, uh, <laughs> but Jesus never does. His anger is always considered. It is always right and just. And so with that correct understanding of the anger of Jesus, which I thought was quite important because he gets angry in this passage, and sometimes we can dismiss it or say, this is a, let's just not think about this. With the right understanding, the question we need to ask is, why is Jesus so angry in this story? What is the root of the problem that he seeks? And I think he gives us the answer in verse 16. So just, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
This is what Jesus says. He gets angry and then he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. You see, on one level, what the, what the people are doing in the temple isn't really that bad. In fact, some could argue, you could argue it's quite a good thing. Because what they're doing is they are um, uh, selling animals, sacrificial animals. People need an animal to sacrifice with. And people are traveling long distances, and so they're coming, and rather than having to bring an animal with them long, long, a long distance and risk it being bitten by a wolf or something, they, they arrive and they're able to, they're able to buy, buy it on site. That's a very, they're, just being, they're being helpful to, to people. They'll buy their animal to sacrifice. The money changes. That was also a helpful thing because people had to have paid a temple tax, um, and so they need the approved currency so they can change their money, get the approved currency, and pay their tax. Helpful. Jesus isn't, I believe, angry with what they're doing, but what he's angry with is the location that they're doing it. They're doing it in the temple. They're doing it in the place that is reserved for the glory and the honour of God. They're doing it in the place which is reserved for worshipping him. They're doing it in the place of prayer. They're doing it in the place where, uh, where there should be a, a sense of, of holiness, of reverence, because Almighty God is manifest. The temple is the throne room of God, or was the throne room of God on the earth. It was the place where God dwelt. It was a touch of heaven on earth. This is a holy, holy, holy place. And what they're doing is they're trivializing the holiness of God and the worship and the glory of God. What about your life? What about my life? We are now, it says in 1 Corinthians 3, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's talking about the corporate church being the temple, but individually as well. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, and as we gather, we are the temple. So your life, my life, have the market traders moved in to your temple, the place in your life which is meant to be reserved for the worship and the praise of God, the place which is meant to be set apart for God. Are there other things that have come in and taken the place that only God deserves? I know in my life that happens on a fairly regular basis. Where I get this, do you know that Holy Spirit conviction? This is a good thing, by the way. The Holy Spirit conviction is like, there's another market trader. Maybe he doesn't use those, that terminology. He might from now on. Uh, but but, but there's, there's that thing in your life which has taken the place of God. There's that thing which is, 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 is occupying the place in the temple of your life which should be the place reserved for the worship of God. And if you feel that, praise God, because that is a sign that you're a Christian. Non-Christians don't get that Holy Spirit conviction. Praise God, because that's a sign that he's at work in your life. It's not, to, it's not there to lead you to guilt and, oh no, I've done it again. Oh no, I've, I'm idolizing things again. I'm, I'm drifting away from God again. Actually, it's there the Holy Spirit conviction comes to lead us to repentance. And repentance leads to life. Because life comes from following after God and turning from our sin. Because there's endless mercy with God. There's endless grace with God. The Holy Spirit convicts. We repent. God forgives. Two days later, two hours later, the Holy Spirit convicts. We repent. God forgives. Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Again and again and again. And that's an amazing place to be. And as followers of God, we can do that. Because the anger of Jesus isn't an anger to make us feel bad and we're worn down. It's anger in the right sense. It's a disciplined anger. Going back to that parent image. Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So if you're being disciplined, you know you're in the love of God and you're following after God. And that is a great place to be.
So listen out to that Holy Spirit conviction. Don't ignore it, but repent when it comes. The place that was meant to be focused on God had become a place that was focused on buying and selling, on activity and busyness. There was meant to be the sound of praying and praising, of glorifying God, and there was a sound of noisy animals. What's the sound coming out of your life? Is it prayer and praise, or is it the noisy animals? I actually mentioned this passage earlier, but in Revelation chapter 3, I think Jesus says a very similar thing, really, in different ways to the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, you, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That sounds quite angry. This is angry, Jesus. Uh, this, this, is, this is the Jesus spit. It's, you know, it's a bit like um, expelling people out of the temple. So he's going to spit us out of, out, out, out of our mouths. But thank goodness it doesn't end there. Because otherwise we'd all be spat out quite regularly and that would be the end of it. Those whom I... It's a bit of a thing in between. But those whom I love... <laughs> which is also good. But those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent hear the same themes coming out. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. Wow, there is repentance. The, the goal of Jesus is communion with us, is to have this fellowship with us. And he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. I'm not, <laughs> I should be spitting out of my mouth straight away, but actually this is a kind of a, uh, the grace of God comes through in this other image that comes, it's like, you see, it's almost two images back to back. I'm spitting out of my mouth. But actually, those who might repent, it's going to be a, there's a knocking going on. A, it, I'm, I'm, I'm calling on you to turn your hearts and come back to me, to cast out the idols from the temple of your life and return to me as your first love. And I think it's really important what Jesus says, going back to our passage in chapter 2. He says, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell the traders to stop trading. He says simply, take these things away. Now, this just goes back to my point. I don't think his problem is what, is what they're doing, but it's where they're doing it. And so in our lives, he's not necessarily... Many of the things he's telling us to take away from that place reserved for the worship and the glory of God aren't things he's saying to stop completely. He's just saying, put them in their right place. Get them out of the temple. Get them out of the place where, which is God's place. So your family relationships. He's not saying, stop having those relationships. Get them out of your life. He's saying, take them out of the place which is reserved for God. Make them secondary to the worship and the glory of God. Your friendships, your work, your whatever else that comes into your life which, which, which competes with God for that first place in your life. He's saying, get them out of the place. Get them out. Get them out. Repent. Turn. Come back to me. Bow the knee again. Of course, there might be things he's saying to get rid of completely things that are sinful which are taking that place but many of the things actually which are dearest to our hearts are those good things that have become as often said a God thing in our lives and this whole sermon series prepare the way is about preparing the way for God 
understandably, for the coming of Jesus, for the move of the Holy Spirit in this place. And he's saying, prepare the way in your hearts. I think I mentioned this um, some time ago when I preached here, but prepare the way in your hearts. And part of preparing the way in our hearts is to get rid of those market traders, to, to expel those things which are taking God's place in our lives. Let Jesus forcefully evict them. And that's painful. If we're taking this serious, this is a painful thing. The whole revival word is a painful thing. Um, it doesn't sort of just... It comes through pain and through dying to ourselves and through laying our lives down and saying, actually, these things which I love, which, are, which, which I'm allowing to come as, as, as the priority in my life, I'm saying, actually, I'm going to push these things aside so that the, the pursuit of God, the pursuit of the presence and the glory and the worship of God is first and foremost in my life. And everything else just takes second place to Him. My eyes are on Him. And then we'll see great things happening, I believe. And if we look at the attitude of Jesus, we see uh, the attitude of Jesus to the temple, we see it's in stark contrast to the market traders. The market traders are people who are just saying, you know, they're they're basically trivialising the temple. They're trivialising the presence and the glory and the worship of God. In contrast, verse 17 says of Jesus, from Psalm 69, says of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. That's quite a contrast to we'll just set up shop and just... Have a, have a nice time here. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for the temple. Zeal for what the temple... He's not saying zeal. He's not saying zeal for this lovely, beautiful building will consume me. Zeal for the worship of God. For the glory of God will consume me. We have a Jesus-like attitude. Look up the word Zeal. In the, in the uh, dictionary, online dictionary, best one, that one, uh, <laughs> easily accessible. Um, can't even find where my notes are now. Here we are. It says this, zeal is dedication or enthusiasm for something. If you have zeal, you are willing, energised and motivated. Zeal for your house will consume you. Let's put it this way. How do you think about Sunday mornings, first of all? How did you come to church this morning? Were you zealous for this gathering? Were you willing, energized, and motivated? Did you come dedicated to and enthusiastic for the worship and the glory of God this morning? And great, and I'm sure many of us, we probably all did. Maybe no no one is here this far from me. But (laughs) sometimes maybe some of us don't. And, and, you know, there are all sorts of good reasons why sometimes we don't. All sorts of good reasons. <laughs> reasons we justify. So maybe it's just the, the stress that's on our minds. And really, the worship and the glory of, God, glory of God is the last thing we're thinking about right now. We just need to get through this next day or this next week or this next however long indefinite period. Maybe it's uh, just, just all the stuff at the moment that's, that's happening around me. Maybe it's I'm on, a, I'm on a serving team or on five serving teams this morning. Um, sometimes that's the case in Chester Street. And, and uh, it's just such a busy morning. To be honest, I've only just thought about worshipping God when I've got home. Maybe it's you've got children, young children, or whatever age children, I guess, um, <laughs> who are around your feet and actually trying to worship in glory of God, worship and focus on the glory of God when you've got a screaming three-year-old on your feet. It's quite challenging. But the point
point is, not necessarily what we are doing. The worship and the glory of God can look different for different people. It's not, oh, we all stand there like this for the whole 40 minutes or however long the, the singing part of the of, of church goes on. The point is the attitude that we come with and the heart that we come with. And so you can very much worship and glorify God with a streaming three-year-old around your feet. Very doable. You might not stand like this, it might not be wise the whole time. Who knows what will happen, what, 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 what will be in front of you in 40 minutes. <laughs> As you're on a serving team or two serving teams, you can very much worship and glorify God, even if that means you're out of the singing time, because worship's far more than singing. We can worship and glorify God as we come but it's not and, and that's the Sunday part in a sense that's well maybe it's not the easy part but some of us might find that the easy part for the worship and glorifying God but it's also seven days a week isn't it Monday to Saturday in your workplace are you zealous for the house of God and by that we're talking broadly here of what it represents the presence the worship and the glory of God in your workplace as you wake up on a Monday morning is your gaze fixed on the worship and the glory of God? As you're out with your friends or you're at home with children or whatever it is that you spend much of your time doing, is your, are you willing, energised and motivated by the presence and glory of God as you're parenting or as you're socialising or as you're doing whatever it is you're doing this day? It's an attitude. It's a heart attitude. Jesus had it. And he calls us to have a similar his presence. Tim Keller says this in a book called The King's Cross. Jesus was returning to a place that was religiously very busy, just like most churches are. Tasks, committees, noise, people coming and going, lots of transactions. But the busyness contained no spirituality. Nobody was actually praying. We can be really busy at a church, we can be really busy as individuals. But what's the motivation? Is it a zeal for the worship and the glory of God? Or is it a duty? Or is it a sense that this is just what we meant to do? Or, or We need a zeal. Who wants to be zealous for God? Yes. Great. Well, I guess the people who said yes are the people who already have that sort of slightly zealous personality. But, but, but some of us probably, <laughs> we're different personalities, so that some of us more introvert personalities can be zealous very quietly for God, and that's also fine. But again, it's the heart thing. Who wants to be zealous for God? I really, really do. And it comes not by telling ourselves to be more zealous. Romans 12:11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. That's nice. That's a nice command. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. I'd be great if that was the case all the time. But what's, what do we do then? I mean, how do you make yourself zealous? It comes as the Spirit reveals the gospel to us again. The good news of Jesus. As we behold Jesus, that is the only way. That is the only way. It's the only way zeal comes by seeing how amazing Jesus is and what he has done for us. It just stirs stuff, not because, not by human effort, but by the, as the Spirit brings revelation. Wow! God is amazing. Wow! The love of God is amazing. And it starts fanning into flame the, 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 what's within us the passion and the desires that actually are within us because if we're a follower of Jesus God has done something by his spirit in us he's put a deposit of this, of this 
fire for God and for his kingdom within us. The trouble is, the stuff of this life just quenches it, and we need the spirit to rekindle it as we see the gospel again and again and again. In this passage, towards the end, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And this utterly confuses and bewilders the people listening. They say, it's 40, however, 46 years to build this temple. And in three days, you're going to build it again. But what he's talking about, it says, is his body. He's talking about his death. He says, destroy this temple. I am now a temple, Jesus says, of the Holy Spirit on earth. I'm a walking temple. I've come and stuffed a new thing. And destroy this temple, and it will be rebuilt in three days. He's talking about his body because they did destroy the temple. They destroyed Jesus. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He rebuilt a new temple. Jesus is now the new and better temple. We no longer have a temple that we have to go to, like in the Old Testament. And we have to all go, come from all, all lots of different places all over the world and spend lots of money to get there and just to worship God. Now, wherever we are, whether we're at work or we're at home or we're here on a Sunday or we're outside or we're in the pouring rain or we're wherever we are, we can worship God. We can glorify God through Jesus. Because he has died and risen again, he is now at, we now have access to Almighty God through him. There's no hindrance, there's no barrier. And the other amazing thing about the new and better temple, Jesus Christ, is that he's, he's paid the sacrifice already. They had to keep putting more sacrifices and more sacrifices just to get to God, just to worship and glorify God. But Jesus, once and for all, as he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, was the one sacrifice forevermore. So now there's free access. There's permanent access, wherever we are, to worship and glorify God. God. Jesus really was destroyed. Destroy this temple, talking about himself. He was destroyed on the cross. It was a sort of just. He was was destroyed. He was beaten and bloodied and bruised and suffocated to death. And that is what he did. He did it for you and he did it for me so that we can now have access to worship and glorify to him so that we can now have a life of, of intimacy with him of knowing him it's a privilege it's a privilege that we take for granted so easily Jesus declares to us this morning I am the new temple come to me and encounter the glory of God. All are welcome. Come boldly. Come confidently. It cost me my life. Do not neglect the costly privilege of meeting with God. Do not let the market traders come into your life and take the place that is reserved for the worship of God alone. Can we just stand, please? Just before the, anyone, just before the band come up or anything, just if we could just stand, just I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to come. We've got plenty of time, which was my desire. <laughs> uh, just the Holy Spirit to come and to fan into flame this deal. In the prayer meeting before 
the service, this theme just sort of came out and it was really encouraging for me. Uh, that's what God wants to do this morning. He wants to make us a people who are set on fire for His glory, for His honor. So come, Holy Spirit. If you want to just lift your hands out to God just to receive from Him.